Well, thanks so much for having me, everyone. Lovely to be here, particularly if you're a visitor. Uh, a special hello to you as well. I'd love to, to echo that. Um, I wonder, has anyone here heard of Ronald Wayne? There's a photo on the, on the screen. Ronald Wayne, anyone heard of that guy? Okay, I'm not surprised. He's not famous, so I would have been surprised if you did. Uh, Ronald uh, isn't famous. Uh, he's more infamous. Uh, he's in his 80s now. He lives in a trailer park in Nevada selling rare coins and stamps. However, 40 odd years ago, in 1976, uh, Ronald started a computer company with two guys, both called Steve. Um, he contributed around $800. He got, had 10% of the company. But not even a fortnight later, 13 days, he had a change of heart. And he thought, mm, this isn't going anywhere. So he sold his 10% of the company back, got his $800, and invested it into gold. Now, I don't know what he did with that investment, but assuming he did not touch it, that investment today is worth around $15,000. Oi, it's not to be sniffed at. It could buy you a car park in Surrey Hills for a couple of weeks. It could do any number of things. However, the reason, as you might have guessed already, the reason why Ronald is infamous is because of that computer company he started. And the two guys he started it with, their names were Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. The company he founded was called Apple. Um, and today, that 10% of the company, if he had not touched it, well, they're not quite sure how much it'd be worth, but it's in the realm of between 70 to 80 billion dollars. I feel like Dr. Evil when I say that. <laughs> billion dollars, an unfeasible amount of money. And even though today, um, I want to say, I've read a few interviews with Ronald, even though he insists he has no regrets. Uh -huh. He has <laughs> no regrets. You'd have to say, at the top of the pile of people who've made poor investments in life, Ronald takes the cake. Ronald um, must have a part of him that wishes he had a time machine where he could go back to just the day before he sold 10% of Apple for $800 and grab himself by the shoulders and say, Ronald, no matter what, above all else, make sure you don't sell the shares. Now let me ask you, what about you? I want you to imagine if you had a time machine, if you could go back Let's not go too young where you don't have any common sense at all. Let's say 15 years old. You can go back to 15 um, and, and you've only got time for one comment, one statement that you can make to your younger self. If you could compile all the wisdom that you had in life, all, all the compiled knowledge you had about what best to do with the time that you have to make your life matter the most, and you ran up to your younger version of yourself and you grabbed yourself by the shoulders, you said, listen, listen, no matter what, above all else, make sure you... How would you finish that sentence? The wisest thing to do in your life, what would you advise yourself? Buy Apple shares. Buy Apple shares. <laughs> Depends how old you are, but still nonetheless, buy Apple shares. It's funny, isn't it, that... Um, there's, there's a myriad of different pieces of advice that we could take. There's, there's, there's um, a limitless supply of people with expertise, self-proclaimed expertise about life. And yet the truth is, what we are in right now, when we think about it, is far more important than Apple shares and far more important than money. What we are in right now is it. This is it. This is life. It's not a dress rehearsal, it's not a practice run, it's not a captain's run. We don't get to redo it over. Um, I'm sure most of us by now have woken up to the point that we, we can't go back in time. You're not going to play for Australia in the sport of your dreams. You're not going to have a number one hit single. You're not going to do any number of the things that you thought you might. As a, You can't go back in time. We've only got one 
life. I want to propose something to you, though. I want to suggest that it stands to reason that even though there are a limitless amount of voices out there, that if Jesus is who he says he is, and I know that for some of us here today, that, that's a really big if, but if Jesus is God, as he says in the Bible, as he claims very clearly, if that's true, well, he's the only voice that we need to listen to about life. Because if he is God, what does that mean? It means that he is the one by, through, and for whom all things were created. That's what the Bible says. But not only did he create you, he also created your meaning. And so we don't need to to search endlessly for meaning externally. We just need to listen to what he says because he's the one who knows best about what life is all about. And I want to say to you that in my own personal life, I've found that... um, that, that actually listening to what Jesus says about life has been in my life like moving from, um, from turbulence in an aeroplane to clear sky. You know? Like moving from a, a dusty off-the-road track in a car onto a freeway. You know? It's not perfect. It's, it's, not, it's not without suffering and pain, and, and we'll talk about those things in a little bit. But to actually live your life according to the purpose that God has ordained for you and created you for changes everything. And so what we're doing this morning um, is, I hope, pretty simple. We're going to look at the parable we just had read to us. And if you do have a Bible, keep that open at Luke chapter 12 or on your phone. But some of the verses will be on the screen. We're going to look at this parable that Jesus talks about. And in it, he reveals to us the meaning of life for every single person you've ever met and for you. Uh, And we're going to spend a little bit of time working out what that looks like for us, what it means for for everyone we know, but also how that applies in our lives. But I also want to flag for you, uh, warn you, uh, that there is a twist coming. Um, There's a twist in what Jesus says here, in the middle of this very short parable, um, that changes everything. Um, It just changes everything about us. Um, so uh, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going. Let me give you a little bit of context uh, for this part of the Bible. This is one of the biographies of Jesus. Um, Luke uh, focuses most of its part of this part of the Bible on talking about what Jesus is doing, his mission while he was here on earth. And Jesus is in a really common context that we find him in. He is speaking to a large crowd of people uh, and he, he's speaking in a rural setting. And that's important. He's speaking to a group of farmers and farm workers. So he's a big crowd of people, rural setting. Just before the parable that we've had read to us happens, he is speaking about incredibly deep and profound things. Think about someone just uh, talking about life and meaning and purpose, everyone engaging with it, everyone really, really listening. When what we see happen is in Luke chapter 12, um, at the very beginning, uh, he is interrupted by the guy who must be the village idiot. Because verse 13, uh, this guy stops Jesus. He stops him from speaking about all these deep, profound things and asks Jesus' help in a financial dispute with his brother. He interrupts Jesus, talking about the meaning of life, and says, Oi, oi, my brother is taking some of the money from the will. It's meant to be mine. Sort him out for me. Help me out. And you can just imagine people who are really listening being like, like, read the room. What are you doing? Now, Jesus' response, though, is iconic Jesus. Classic Jesus. And if you haven't looked into the life of Jesus, he is endlessly surprising. Endlessly surprising in what he does. He does not react ever the way that you expect. What he does is he does not even address the man except to insult him. He says, get out of here. 
He does not answer the man's request, certainly. What he does instead is he takes the motivation behind the man's question, money, possessions, and he makes a bigger point. He applies the motivation to everyone listening. And if this book is to be believed, this is a living book, which means that it's also applied to us here today. Jesus takes the motivation behind this crazy question and instead gets right to the core of what life is really uh, about. Have a look what he says here in your Bible. It will be on the screen as well. Uh, In verse 15, he says this, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What's Jesus saying at the very beginning? Jesus is telling everyone, us included, warning, be alert. Greed, now what's greed? Greed is the endless pursuit, the endless desire for more. Greed is not something reserved just for rich people. Very poor people can also be very greedy. It's also not just reserved for money. You can be greedy about any number of things, not just money and food. You can be greedy for well, really, something that you don't have or something that you don't think you have enough of. Jesus says, warning, watch out, be careful. Greed is a trap. Greed consumes you, the endless desire, the endless pursuit for more, 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 more. It will never give you what you want. Why? Look what he says, the final part of that sentence. He makes a binary statement, a right and wrong, yes and no statement. Life does not consist in an abundance of of possessions. And I want to say that whilst that might feel like a fairly innocuous statement against materialism, as if Jesus is some sort of anti-capitalistic crusader, that is not what he is saying here. By saying life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying something that is revolutionary, radical, and deeply confrontational to our culture. If life doesn't consist of this, It means it must consist of something else. In other words, there is both a right but also a wrong way to live. You can live life the wrong way. Your meaning, your purpose is not to be found from within. It's not something you have to invent and cobble together that you have to sort of pluck from a bunch of different philosophies and say, well, this is how I view life. Jesus is saying that's not true. Life isn't whatever you want it to be. Life is what it is. It is what it is. And so what he then does is tell a parable to tell us exactly what it is. It's not possessions. It's not more. It's not trying to get more stuff. So what is it? Or to explain it, he tells this parable. And you see it here. It's it's a very short one. On on, on the surface level, uh, it's it's quite quite straightforward. A parable is is a moral story. But parables are fascinatingly used by Jesus. Um, uh, He often uses parables to make complexity clear. But in Matthew chapter 13, in one of the other biographies, he tells us he often also uses parables to make clear things complex. Why does he do that? Why would Jesus use a story to make something harder to work out? Simple reason. He's weeding out the time wasters. He's weeding out people who aren't actually listening at all. And instead... Speaking to those who will hear. And I wonder if that is you today. You know, for years I sat in churches completely just counting the bricks, not interested at all. And then for one moment, it changed. 
I wonder if you will hear that today in this parable there's more than what you may think going on. Have a look at it here. It's a very, very um, straightforward story, quite a, a straightforward um, um, a recollection or a, a anecdote that he's telling. He's telling the story of a rich man. And you see here, this man's a farmer, verse 16 to 19. This man's a farmer, uh, and he has an incredibly successful year. So successful that he can kick back, relax, and do nothing for the rest of his life. He can just retire. Now, the whole point is that this isn't about farmers. Okay, Jesus is not anti-farmer. That's not the point. The point is that this is about meaning. It's not about that this man is a farmer. He uses farmers because he's speaking to farmers. But today, Surrey Hills, if Jesus was to come in and talk to us, who would he use? Well, he'd use whatever job it is you do. He'd use, well, you could be a barista. You could be a barrister. You could be you know, working in some sort of corporate office in the city. You could be a, a garbage man. It doesn't matter. The point is that this person, this man, has succeeded in life. To every perspective known to humanity, endlessly contemporary viewpoint of life, this man has made it. He's made it. He's retired early. He's done everything that he ever wanted. Everyone would look at this person and say, you are a success. And yet that is not the perspective that Jesus says God has. Look at verse 20. God's perspective of this man is what? You fall. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? God tells this man, you are a fool. Tonight, you will die. Then, who's going to get all the things you've built up for yourself? Now, just press pause there for me for a moment. On the surface level, what do you think the point is that Jesus is making? You can't take it with you. Don't invest all of your energy and efforts into money, into property, into all the accomplishment that you can desire because you can't take it with you. Now, that's certainly one of the points, one of the sort of sideline points he's making. But there's much more going on here. And believe it or not, it's all tied in with that word he uses, fool. You fool. Now, just let me ask you, what does the word fool mean? Rhetorical question, so please don't shout it out. But in your head, what is a fool? A fool is not an idiot or a moron. You know, you're not done. A fool is different. It's not someone lacking in intelligence. The direct definition of the word fool is thoughtless. To be foolish is to be someone who does not think, who pays no heed to how things actually are, and so lives life doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with whoever they want, with no real thought to the consequences. It's a really important word in the Bible. Jesus uses it a lot to describe people who are living away from God. They are without thought. They are foolish people. And it's often used in direct contrast with its opposite. The opposite of foolishness in the Bible is wisdom. So on one hand, you've got foolishness defined as thoughtlessness, always contrasted almost with wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, pop over to Proverbs chapter 4, which was the second reading we had. Proverbs is a 3,000-year-old book of wisdom given by God to his people about how to live life. Now, it's an incredible book, really, really practical, but speaks a lot about wisdom. Chapter 4 is probably my favorite chapter in here, but I want to point out to you just one verse, because chapter 4, verse 7, I reckon is one of the best definitions of wisdom that we have. Let me read it for you again. The beginning of wisdom is this, get Wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get 
understanding. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's one of those words that's easier to illustrate than it is to define. What's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing not to touch the hot plate. Wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing that if you're going through drive through at a McDonald's with children and you're buying Happy Meals, to demand that they all get the same toy. It's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing that if your partner says nothing's wrong, it's usually you. Okay? Wisdom. We know that experience, knowledge, intelligence, these things are compounded in it, but what is it? Verse 7, have a look at it. We're told three things. Number one, we do not instinctively have it. Look what it says. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. You don't have it, you need it, you need to get it. It may surprise you, but you can meet many, many old people who are not wise. Wisdom has nothing to do with age. It can commonly come through the aging process, but not directly as a result. Wisdom is something that you and I do not instinctively have. It's not just in us. We need to pursue it. It has a start. We need to get it. Number two, shockingly, look what it says. Though it costs all you have. Hold on. Wisdom is portrayed here as the most valuable thing you could have. Now, let me be absolutely clear. We are not just talking about property, possessions, and money at this stage. Wisdom is portrayed as more valuable than your partner, than your spouse, than your children, than your loved ones, than your career, than your reputation. The most important thing that you can seek for, according to God in his word, is wisdom. But what is it? Verse 7. The word understanding is the key. What? What is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding what? Wisdom is understanding reality. I just want you to hold that for a moment. Wisdom is the understanding of life's reality. And then navigating your way through life as a result of having the understanding of that reality. It's the opposite of thoughtlessness where you just blunder your way through without any thought whatsoever. Instead, wisdom is thoughtfulness. If I said to you right now, go to my house, here's the address, 13 Red Gum Close, Bado Bay. You could have a broad, go catch a train, go to Arimba, get on out, then what? Well, you can sort of walk your way there. Without a map, what hope do you have? Nothing. But if you have a map, suddenly everything changes. Wisdom... Thoughtfulness, reality, seeing things how it really is. And that is portrayed as the most important thing you can have. Let me illustrate it for you. Um, you've seen, or maybe you haven't, but I'm here with four of my, I'm here with my four little boys. And they, are, they have a scale of irritation. Um, and they're sort of in the middle of it at the moment after a long drive this morning. One of them in particular, Jesse, he's been up since five o'clock this morning. Jesse, he's actually obsessed, well, he used to be obsessed with drums. And we... Um, we worked at a church where after church every Sunday, he would run to the front to the drum kit, which wasn't as gold and sparkly as your one, but would run to the front and you just see him there, you know, sort of tapping away, tapping away. It wasn't a big deal. However, one Sunday, I was there talking to someone after church and I could hear... I mean, he really had great rhythm too, by the way. It was incredible. But there was Jesse. He was sitting on the seat and smashing every cymbal as loudly as he could, banging away. I was aghast, terrified. I was about to run up when I turned over and looked at the rest of the congregation. And you know what those idiots were doing? 
They were clapping him. They were encouraging him. Yay, Jesse! Now, they thought it was cute. Why? Because he's four. And four-year-olds know what about life? Nothing. They know nothing about life. They have no understanding of reality, no understanding of how to properly act and react in proper social contexts and situations. And so they do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with no thought whatsoever. Now, let's have a different scenario. Let's say after church today, we finish up and I run to the front. And I start, as you're talking. And you just look at me, I'm like, what? As loud as I can. Now, is that cute? Why not? Because I'm 41. And you would hope by this stage I would have cobbled together some sense of, well, the reality of life. And that doing that may conflict with your reality quite deeply. My dear friends, understand this right now. Jesus says the heart of the human problem is foolishness, thoughtlessness. Not understanding reality, not seeing things how they really are, but wisdom is the understanding of reality, is seeing life how it really is. Now, holding on to both those principles, pop back over to Luke chapter 12 in your Bibles, have a look at it, and I I want you to understand what's going on and what, what the bigger point that Jesus is making is. Jesus says this man, who has done everything that most of us could ever dream of, he has displayed financial acumen. He's, business, he's got business brains. He's obviously smart. There's no word that he's particularly evil or wicked. He's not more immoral than anyone else. Um, doesn't say he's a workaholic. Doesn't say anything like that. In fact, all he's done has been a success. He has done and accomplished what most of us dream of, what most of us spend most of our time thinking and doing. Yet Jesus says this man is a fool. He is thoughtless. He has not considered reality. So what does wisdom look like if that's foolishness? Look at verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Jesus says there's more to life than possessions, not just the possession of property or money, but the possession of a good reputation, the possession of all of your dreams accomplished, the possession of all your treasures becoming real. He says there's more to life than your achievements, your accomplishments, your attainments. What is it? He says that you were created for the very strange expression to be rich towards God. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me assure you what it isn't. This is not about money. God's not there with his wallet saying, Oi, come on. This is talking about true wealth. True richness. This is talking about love. The richness and wealth that all of us truly deep down pursue, which is the richness of relationship. That you and I were created for love, to love. My goodness, during COVID, didn't we feel the opposite at play? Isolation, loneliness. Desolation, pushed apart from one another, the destruction that causes to our minds, our bodies, our souls. We were created to be together, to love and to be loved. That's the true richness of life that the Bible says all the way throughout relationships. Now, I want to say to you, 
What do you make of that? The thought that you were created not just for you, but for others, and they were created for you. How does that sit with you? I want to say it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And not only that, it doesn't just make sense. Science backs it up. That's the way to have a healthy, um, loving life, the way to most enjoy your life. But also our personal anecdotes and experiences, I want to say, also um, testify to it. Let me try and prove this to you right now. I want you, um, I want you to try and think of the very best person that you know. Just think of that person right now. What is it about them that makes them so good? Go broader. What makes any good person good? Now guess what you get to do? You get to turn to the person next to you and talk about it. Just take a minute, and can I just recommend, if you're sitting next to your partner or spouse, probably say them. You don't have to. <laughs> do whatever you want. It's your funeral. But do whatever you want. No, no, no. Say whoever you want. Talk to the person next to you. The best person you know, what is it, the traits, what, are the, what do they do that makes them so good? Just have 30 seconds, have a chat, then we'll see what we all come up with. Go for it. All right, well, who wants to share? Go on. What did anyone come up with? What is it about the best person you know that makes them so good? Who wants to share? <laughs> you don't even have to put your hand up to shout for it, but thank you for doing so. Thoughtfulness and good listening. Oh, yeah. The person who actually asks you questions about yourself and doesn't just talk about them. Absolutely. Thoughtfulness, good listening. Anyone else? Kindness, yeah, showing that generosity in every way, just thoughtfulness about how they treat other people. Genuine affection for others. Yeah, genuine affection for others. Now, I wonder, are these words ringing and resonating with you as you think about your favourite person, that, or maybe whether it's not just your favourite person, the best person that you know? You see, when we gauge true wealth and true richness in life, what are we gauging? It's not a bank balance. Oi, you can be generous and thoughtful and kind with a bank balance, but it's not the bank balance that makes you so. It's the heart that determines how that overflows. True wealth in life, when you get to the very end and people are reading your eulogies, what do you want them to say? Oh, they were great with figures. You should have seen how they moved that around and beat the tax man there and did this. Oh, did you see their waterside property? Incredible. Oh, my God. And yet, the evidence of our lives, how much time do we pour into, let's say, category one possessions versus category two relationships? But here's what's fascinating. When we think about goodness in relationships, we always, always, always think about how we treat each other. We very, very, very rarely think about how we treat God. We don't categorise God that way, do we? And yet to Jesus, when he talks about relationship and he talks about your meaning, your purpose, the thing that makes you you, that you were created for, what does he say? 
the most important relationship, the one above all other things, the one you are primarily created for, is to know and love God. That's who you are. He made you for him. And your view of God might be the distant uncle with a white beard. It might be the the school teacher marking the role. It might be the, the policeman making sure you do or don't do these. My dear friends, none of those things are an accurate representation of the true living, breathing God of the Bible. God loves you. He made you to love him, to know and to be known. And I want to suggest to you that that's why nothing else will ever give you what you want. It gratifies, doesn't it? Gratify, 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 gratify. Never satisfies. Has Bill Gates ever retired? Jeff Bezos? Do these guys ever stop working? No. Why? They can't. It's an endless pursuit for more, believing there's a new version of yourself where you've achieved all your dreams and you're finally happy. It doesn't exist. Because what you're looking for can only be found with God. Now, I want to suggest to you that is a message in the Bible, the message of humanity and God in the Bible that runs all the way through both Old and New Testaments. And that is where Jesus is pointing you and I to as we think about our possessions, as we think about foolishness, as we think about wisdom. But, let me ask a question. If this is actually true, because it sounds very nice, doesn't it? I think it's true. It sounds amazing. But if it is true, how come it doesn't look like that? How come it doesn't feel like that? How come if true meaning in life was found in relationship with God, everyone who's not a Christian wouldn't look at Christians and go, oh my goodness, look at their lives, I want that. That's not the case in Australia. Is that your experience? It's for some. But less people are claiming to be Christians in Australia at any other point in our history. There's a rising hunger but also hostility towards Christianity. We're not surrounded by people banging down the door saying, please give me what you have. Forget about it. That's not what's happening. And why doesn't it feel like it? And if you're not a Christian at the moment and you're here visiting, let me peer behind the curtain and give you the honest truth, the bare bones truth of being a Christian. Being a Christian is the hardest thing I've ever done. What about you? I know God and I know I'm, I'm, I'm saved and I love God. He's, he's the greatest part of my life. But being a Christian has also produced the greatest hardship, the greatest difficulty for me. It's made things relationally difficult. It, it's opened up an awareness to my own life, which can be incredibly difficult to deal with. I still battle with sin. Oh my goodness, do I still battle with sin. You should have seen me in the car on the way down from the Central Coast this morning. I still battle with sin. I still battle with guilt. I still battle with regret. Christians still get cancer. We still suffer. We still die. So how could it possibly be true that being rich towards God is the best, most worthwhile pursuit of your entire life? How could that possibly be true? Well, I want to, at this point, show you a twist in what Jesus has said that changes everything. It doesn't undo what he said already, but adds another dimension to the understanding which I'm convinced changes everything about how we view our own lives, but also how we view God. 
How is it possible that knowing God and having wisdom is more worthwhile than having money, than having possessions, than, than being comfortable? There can only be one possible reason. The only possible reason can be if this world, this life, is not all there is. Boy, if this is it, forget about it. Get out of here. Let's go. What are we doing here? You know, if this life is all there is, earn as much money as you want. Don't give any of it away. Spend it on whatever you want. Cheat on your wife. Cheat on your husband. Do it again and again. What matters? It doesn't matter. Why not pursue comfort? Why not pursue whatever you want in life? Prosperity, abundance. Whoever dies with the most does win. Because this is it. This is the game. This is all we've got. But if the reality of our existence is that this life is not it, if there is more to life than what you and I can see right in front of us right now, then that means everything must change. So you see, my dear friends, the most critical question that we must demand of ourselves and we must demand of God is what is reality? If wisdom is the understanding of how life really is, if wisdom is the understanding of reality, then living according to that wisdom and reality, what is reality? We'll come back just a few chapters to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we have this scene where Jesus gives his um, disciples a little uh, uh, mission statement to his own life. He gives them a, um, an overview of what he's going to be doing before... Um, telling his disciples and us, everyone who would follow him, what life will look like for us. Listen to what he says here. Verse 22 of chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Now just press pause there. That should be on, is it there? Just press pause there for a second. How would you define Jesus' life? Don't, don't do the last few words. Just those parts I've read. How would you define, summarize the life of Jesus? Suffering, rejection, death. Why would he do that? Well, biblically, there's probably two or three answers we could give. Love, yes, amen. Obedience to his Father's will, yes. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking why would he go through with that? you ever considered that? Why would Jesus put himself through all of those things? Because of the last few words. And on the third day, be raised to life. Jesus knew that his life didn't end in death. He knew with certainty that he would be resurrected. Even more than that, listen to this, he knew that by his death and his resurrection, we too can have eternal life. Bad people can be entered, accepted into God's kingdom through what he would do. And so because he's shaped his entire life around eternity, not the present, it meant that he shrugged off any attempts at earthly prestige and power. 
read the biographies of Jesus, look into his life and see again and again and again, rejected the authorities, rejected opportunities to get money, rejected the opportunity to be popular, told parables that confuse people deliberately. Why would he do that? Because he was not driven by earthly but eternal realities. And so after giving the mission statement to his own life, just look a few verses later, verse 24, verse 25, listen to what he tells us, those of us who are Christians to do. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? My dear friends, what is the reality of your life right now? The reality of your existence? Step outside of yourself. What is the reality that Jesus tells you? This world is not your home. It's no one's home. This is not it. In 100, 500, 1,000 years' time, every single one of us in this room will be alive. We are eternal beings with an eternal future. And where you will be is entirely determined by how you respond to God in this life. That's the reality that Jesus offers. This world is not your home. Would you spend your entire life renovating, pouring all of your effort and energy into a house that you knew was to be condemned two weeks later? Of course you wouldn't. Would you pour all of your effort and energy into a job when you knew you were getting the sack a week later? You're quiet quitting a mile away. Jesus' attitude to life is shaped by eternity. He is an eternal viewpoint that shapes the priorities, the decisions, the who, the what, the why of everything that he did. So what does that mean for our lives today? Well, just take a moment. What has Jesus taught us? What are we learning from this parable? I just want you to hold on to two major, two major points here. Number one, God loves you. God has a plan for your life. That plan is to know him. That's God's plan, that you will be in a relationship with him. Number two, eternity is real. This world is not your home. So how do we take those truths and apply them to our lives? Get back in that time machine. Go back to when you're 15 years old. You've got the opportunity. Above all else, no matter what. Now, what do you think Jesus would want you to say? What advice, if that's the context of your life, would you give to your younger version? Well, I want to suggest to you that the only possible answer could be be rich towards God. Now, what does that mean? Know God. Above all else, no matter what, Know God. Now let me ask you, who's not a little bit disappointed by that? (laughs) Really? Are you saying that Jesus' wisdom, the entire wisdom that Jesus has of all of our lives can be boiled down to know God? What a newsflash. What a surprise. Jesus says, love God. It can feel quite underwhelming. There's nothing more profound than that. No. There is nothing more profound than that. That is God's great wisdom for your life, but it takes wisdom to see that it's wisdom. The context of the reality of our lives is that heaven and hell are real. 
It's that God wants to know and love you. Now, what does that mean for how we live our lives? Well, let me illustrate it. I want you to imagine that you're rock climbing and, and uh, you're, the, you're in the middle of a, of a huge cliff, climbing up this huge cliff that stretches hundreds and hundreds of metres high. The only thing, the only thing holding you up is one single rope. You don't have clips, you don't have harness, you don't have anything. It's just you and the rope. What is wisdom in the light of that reality? No matter what, buy the best rope you can. Don't skint on the rope. It's all about the rope. Or you're scuba diving. Imagine you're you're, 50 metres underwater. What's wisdom in the light of that reality? No matter what, above all else, make sure you have enough air. Or your wetsuit, your flippers... Who cares? Without the air, you're dead. You were created to know and love God. Eternity is your future. Eternal life is the promise today through trusting in Jesus. So what is the reality of that existence? My dear friends, God is your rope. He's all we have. God is your air supply. Without him, we're dead. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to say to you that what Jesus is saying is not that you are somehow lesser, that you're somehow wasting your life because there's something that you're not a Christian so you've done it the wrong way. That's not the picture of what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying all of us, every human being, is in that boat until we cling to the rope that he offers However, no matter what you've done, where you've been, how you've done it, it's there for you. You heard Grant earlier speak about life coming up. You've got a postcard on your, on your chair. It's a wonderful series, a wonderful course to do. Keep looking into these things. But if you are a Christian here today, what does it look like for you to cling to the rope of God in your life? Well, I reckon very, very simply what it means is to continually, endlessly have your view of life shaped Not by the world, but by the word. Not by what we want to think are our instincts, but rather by what God tells us. We're like musical instruments that go out of tune, constantly, constantly, constantly veering away. But instead, God tells us not to spend the next 50, 60, 70 years of our lives pursuing what the world does with a little bit of Jesus on the top, but rather to focus everything in your heart upon the rope upon God. That's what you're made for. And that's what it looks like to live a life the way God has designed. It will have suffering, it will have pain, it will have heartache, it will have heartbreak. You will die. And yet through Christ, you will live forever. And that's the promise that Jesus makes to us. Well, my friends, I'm going to close our time now in prayer. Uh, Will you bow your heads as I pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your kindness and your good gifts to us in Jesus and your word. I pray um, that through the power of your spirit we may hear what you say and, and be changed and transformed. For those here who don't yet know you, I pray that you'd continue to fill them with a desire to learn, to know more, to come to you, to love you. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, I pray, Lord, that, um, 
we would continue to move away deliberately, intentionally, um, from the things which distract us and drag us away, the pursuit of possessions, and rather find our hope, our joy, our everything, in you and you alone. It's your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you so much.